0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's sermon is preached by Nate Penley. Good morning good to be here and I'm glad to have the opportunity to get to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I am uh, very honored to be able to get the chance to speak to you this morning and bring the word to you. Um, it is something that has always made me a little nervous as I am handling the word of God. And it is certainly something that is a big responsibility. But I am grateful to have this opportunity to be able to do this to you this morning. So if you are ready, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Starting in chapter 4, verses 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh." Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Do you please join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and we uh, thank you that we can come together and uh, look at it and be encouraged. I just pray that you would give me clarity as I uh, communicate uh, the study that you've given to me, and I pray that this word would be convicting to us, and that we would be able to encourage each other, sharpen each other, and go about, change people as we look into your word together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing with the theme of injustice and wickedness from chapter 3, chapter 4 jumps right into the oppressions that are committed under the sun. You don't have to be a history buff to know of the pervasiveness of oppression, nor do you need a degree in sociology to understand its effects on humanity. This is a simple truth that is easily recognized by all and it is clearly identified by the writer of this text that it was as pervasive in his day as it is in ours or in any time in the past. There is no doubt that King Solomon would have been familiar with the historic oppressions of his own people by the Egyptians and their miraculous deliverance by the hand of God. However, this context does not seem to be making implications of any specific examples, rather just a general observation of oppressors and the oppressed. And since the word oppression is one of those current buzzwords that gets thrown thrown around a lot today and is being overused in most everyday speech, I thought it would be a good idea to make sure that we take a minute to define it properly so that we can make an accurate description, uh, interpretation of this text. Merriam-Webster defines oppression as an unjust or or cruel exercise of authority or power or a sense of being weighed down in body or in mind. The root word, Hebrew word here, that is used for, for oppression is ashek. And it is used many times throughout the Old Testament. Three more times it will be used in the book of Ecclesiastes, and always in reference to personal rather than national oppression. And given the t- context that it is used in the Old Testament, I think that Mary Webster gives a fair definition of this word, the, uh, that being an unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. Solomon here in this text isn't speaking about a historical time, uh, time in history, nor is he speaking about a specific place where oppressions occurred. Rather, he claims in verse 1 to be an eyewitness to all the oppressions. The preacher is actively observing oppression happening in his own day. And as we heard last week from Pastor Scott, the preacher, being Solomon, had begun to lament the lack of justice in his own day. And in the place of justice was injustice. It should come as no surprise that God-ordained authorities who have been tasked with carrying out the justice of God have more often than not used unequal weights and measures as a tool to keep its subjects subdued. This has been a constant theme throughout history, spanning thousands of years from the Israelite oppression at the hand of the Egyptians to the Uyghur persecution of the Communist Chinese party. In Nehemiah, there was the oppression of the poor during famine The prophet Ezekiel condemns Israel for their many injustices, which also includes the oppression of the poor. The scriptures record countless examples of power being abused for the benefit of the oppressor. So it should come as no surprise that Solomon has witnessed oppression in his day. However, instead of offering hope from the oppression, we find a pretty grim conclusion of life under the sun. It's important to remember that this is a description of life under the sun which means that mankind being affected by his sin nature would naturally be inclined to abuse authority or any such power that he finds at his disposal as long as the curse of sin exists over man pain and suffering that is caused by the hand of wicked and evil men will never cease jesus makes a claim in matthew 28 or 26:11 that we will always have the poor with us and Since having the poor is a guarantee, then we should also expect that oppression of the poor will always be a temptation for sinful men. This is the reality that Solomon is describing in this text. He realizes that under the sun, there will be no end to oppression, endless work, endless toil, endless bondage, endless abuse from the abuser with no one to comfort them. Solomon points out the emotional end road of this reality, which is hopelessness, isolation, defeat. With a narrow focus on this physical life, despair is the logical conclusion. It is programmed into the factory settings of this physical life. And if this physical life is all that we have, then the desire to not be in existence might actually be preferable than to endure more suffering. Suffering is common in this life, and therefore, despair is a common response to suffering. After Job lost his children, property, and health, he laments his own birth by saying, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and darkness claim it, let clouds dwell upon it, let the blackness of the day terrify it. Job 3, 3-5. The prophet Jeremiah also laments the day that he was born when he says, Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Jeremiah twenty eighteen. I think that if we're honest with ourselves, these feelings of hopelessness is something that we have all felt to some degree in our lifetimes. And this grim description of life without any joy or redemption to be found sheds a light on an important truth. The truth is that humanity is plagued with the curse of sin and it groans in pain for redemption. While everyone's degree of suffering differs to the degree with which we experience it, it is impossible to avoid the very oppressive nature of sin itself. Sin that so easily entangles us, weighing us down like a burden bringing charges against us, broadcasting to all the debt that is owed, reminding us of our helplessness to resist its tyranny over our souls and leading us down a path that ends in destruction. And if our focus is only on what is here and now in this physical realm, Solomon's feelings of despair are probably familiar to us. Thankfully, we have been given more than just this life. We have hope from the oppressive weight of sin. Jesus has given us the victory over our greatest oppressor. He is the only one that can give hope that transcends the evils of this lifetime. And since we can't avoid the sting of sin or the oppressions of this lifetime, we must never lose sight of the eternal promises that Christ gives. He promises to make all things new, to make us whole, to give us new bodies free from the curse of sin to be allowed to boldly approach the throne of God because Jesus has erased our debt. And without this reality before us, we will inevitably fall into the depths of despair. Let us not forget the promises of our king. He will enact true justice on all of creation. And there is no oppressor that can steal that from us. Jesus will have his victory and will one day establish perfect justice. Before moving on, While this section of scripture is primarily about the one being oppressed, I think it would be appropriate to talk for a minute about the oppressor. While ultimately the oppressor suffers from the same eternal problem as the oppressed, his current situation wouldn't apply to the feelings of despair that we find in verses 2 and 3. Why? Because as verse 1 says, he has power. He finds a false sense of security in his power. While wielding the power that he has here on earth, he falls into the trap of thinking that he is safe from the perils of this life. He believes his power will grant him freedom from the will of others, provide all his wants and needs, and give him security for tomorrow. But in the end, the curse of sin will come for him too, at which time he will see the futility of his own life and the pathetic nature of his own power. Given the times in which we live, I feel it appropriate to mention that the very nature of power and authority are under attack. Some might use this verse to make a case against those who have power and authority. Neither this verse nor the rest of Scripture expressly condemns power in and of itself. But it cannot be denied that the statement by John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton is true that states, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts Absolutely. Any person or institution that acquires too much power will inevitably find himself oppressing others. So it might be a natural conclusion that power is the problem. But is power truly the root cause of oppression? Or is power merely a gasoline to a deeper problem? We have already mentioned that we suffer from a sinful nature. We know this from scriptures such as Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also from Isaiah 53.6, All of us have wandered off like sheep. Each of us has strayed off on his own path. No one is above the curse of sin. And this is our ultimate problem. This is our fire, if you will. And when we add the gasoline of power to the mix, well, the results are scientifically predictable. My fellow pyromaniacs are tracking with me now. While power and authority have their divine places in Scripture, it is important to point out that power put into the hands of any man that does not have constant accountability will absolutely become oppressive. Yet we cannot and should not let power or authority be declared as evil in and of itself. God has ordained authorities for mankind, authority for the civil magistrates, authority for the church, authority for the family, authority for the self, all of these authorities have been ordained by god and therefore we cannot let positions of power be declared declared as evil as god has declared them good not to mention that if we allow power to be declared as evil then it would stand to reason that god himself being the most powerful being in all of all a powerful being of all would be declared the most evil and wicked being of all and this is often the charge of unbelievers that refuse to submit to the holy creator god Instead, they want to be like God. They want to be in control. They envy the power that is only due to an infinite and holy God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is our problem as well. We want to be in control. We envy God's power. We don't want to submit. And this is why when power is put into our hands, it has the potential to be very dangerous. This reality should create in us a humility, When we are being oppressed or treated unjustly by others, the truth is that, apart from the grace of God, we would be no different. Our oppression against others would be just as repulsive, and this reality is what can grant us the compassion necessary to show love to our oppressor, to the one that treats us unjustly, because our sin against an infinitely holy God has been forgiven. Can we not forgive those that mistreat us? And so while God has granted us authority, he has also given us accountability. Because we are human, we must hold each other accountable. And no matter what position of authority you might find yourself in, you must never forget that all are accountable to God. This truly is one of the most depressing sections of this book. When power is abused and oppression has occurred, it can be most depressing. This short section speaks to the grim realities that exist because of the wickedness of man. And no hope is offered after the observations are made, just despair. Let us not dwell strictly on the circumstances of this physical world, as Solomon gives us a picture of what the end road looks like when we do. Rather, let us always remember the promises of Christ and his redemption, lest we fall into despair. One last observation. Uh, I'd like to share this little story with you in my studies. Uh, I must admit that when I first read verse 1 of chapter 4, I saw two groups of people being addressed, the oppressor and the oppressed. And following the mentioning of both groups comes the phrase, they had no one to comfort them. And having broached the topic of justice in verses 16 of chapter 3, and with the statement in 17 that comes right after that, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. I thought Solomon was making a similar point here in verse 1, that it doesn't matter which group you might fit into, the oppressor or the oppressed, you suffer from the same problem. The problem being that you have no one to comfort you. This seemed logical to me, given where he goes in the following two verses. He doesn't say that it would be better for just for the oppressors to have never been born, but in general, desirable for anyone to have never been born, so as to not see the wickedness that occurs under the sun. However... After not being able to find even one commentary that agreed with my interpretation there, and I read a lot of commentaries, I decided to share with you that my tale of study as an encouragement to you that often when we, we think we know things, we don't. And it's helpful to get encouragement from other people, sharpening from other people. I don't think that uh, my misinterpretation would have led me into full-blown heresy, but you never can be too careful. So... Turns out, the repeating of the phrase, there was no one to comfort them, is is merely a way of adding emphasis to the sufferings of the oppressed. And while it is true that sin is oppressive to all men, Solomon is primarily speaking of the hopelessness of the oppressed. Solomon changes gears in verse 4 while discussing the motivations of work. Unlike the oppressed in verses 1-3 through who are motivated to work by fear of their oppressor, we now turn our gaze to the motivations of others by something that is often just as oppressive. Envy, being a sneaky yet ugly foe, is often a driving factor in accomplishing our work. Work is a gift that God has given to man from before the fall. In Genesis 1, God gives all of creation to man to care for and have dominion over. Work is a necessary and gracious gift from God that is by nature rewarding. When we work, we earn a reward. We enjoy rewards when we nurture, when we tend, when we create, when we offer services to others. And not only are we rewarded with physical wealth when we do, but we also receive a sense of accomplishment, having completed a God-ordained task. And even though work is a glorious gift from God that is designed for the benefit of all, motivations are important. Solomon reminds us in his observations of life under the sun that motivations are often sinful for mankind. From birth, it is observable that envy is a driving motivation in our children. Anyone that has ever watched any child for any amount of time can attest to the envious nature displayed even in children from the earliest of age. I know this because I didn't have to teach my son to desire the toy that his brother was holding. Nor did I have to teach him that hitting his brother was an effective means of acquiring the toy. Nor did I have to teach him that once he acquired his brother's toy, that it would almost immediately become boring once he noticed the toy that was in his sister's hands. These were his factory settings, as they were also mine. The sin of envy is also a result of our sin natures. And while work is truly a gift of God for us, work with the motivation of envy can never grant satisfaction. Rather, envy is a cruel slave master. There is no amount of achievement that will satisfy an envious heart. Any reward that we achieve can only bring a moment of happiness. And it isn't long before the feelings of satisfaction wears off and we find ourselves in search again for that hit of achievement. Keeping up with the Joneses puts us in the cycle of work, reward, envy. Work, reward, envy. This, too, is vanity. Solomon observes that there is no satisfaction to be found in work that is motivated by envy. Pastor Scott has mentioned in previous uh, previously that Solomon most likely wrote this book near the end of his life, and that this book appears to have been written in repentance of the sin that had plagued much of Solomon's life. We know from 1 Kings 10.23 that King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. His wealth was unparalleled. His list of monetary achievements in 1 Kings 10 is truly overwhelming, even by today's standards. And yet it appears that after he acquired all his wealth, it left him unsatisfied. Envy only leads to vanity. Verses 5 and 6 continue with the theme of work, but are best seen as two separate, contrasting proverbs. The first in verse 5 speaks to the end result of laziness when it says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And so we see the end result of laziness is self-destruction. And this destruction is described in rather gruesome, cannibalistic detail. A man that doesn't work will ultimately consume himself, which is a way of speaking of his own demise. Common sense tells us that we need sustenance and nourishment to survive, and work is required to acquire sustenance. Therefore, When we choose not to work, ultimately we will be left with nothing to eat other than ourselves. Starvation will be the demise of the sluggard. This stands in stark contrast to the slave of envious work, which leads Solomon to the proverb in verse 6, better a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Is there anything more satisfying than quietness? My mothers are shaking their heads. The two hands that are consumed with toil can never find peace, but finding satisfaction in work while not becoming a slave to envy should be our goal. Finding this balance will grant us times of peace, something that neither the oppressed slave nor the sluggard will ever find. Finding the balance is, is the charge here. I think that Martin Luther's story of a drunk man on a horse is a good illustration of this struggle. Our struggle with balancing work and laziness is like a man who, after falling off on one side of his horse, climbs back on only to fall off on the other side. Anyone who has ever been on a horse would be able to observe a couple things that are pretty much universal. First, being on a horse is really uncomfortable and generally undesirable. And before I get any pushback on that point, the second is that being able to balance on a horse requires a constantly alert mind. It would not be advisable to jump on a horse while being distracted with other things. Your, at- your full attention is required to be able to maintain safety. The same goes for life. We must be vigilant in addressing the temptations that come our way. Temptation to shirk our responsibilities that God has called us to do will lead us to physical suffering. Likewise, we must also be vigilant to resist making work our slave master, as this will lead to emotional suffering. Striking a balance between two extremes can be a difficult task, but it is one worthy of pursuing. After addressing the two extremes of toil, Solomon makes an observation of the absurdity of some of the people that have made envy their master. When envy is your master, work will become your companion. In the beginning, when God created man, he declared that it is not good for the man to be alone. Thus he created a helper for him. Man was not created to live in isolation. He was intended to be a relational being. And the closest of all earthly relationships, which is the husband-wife relationship, was intended to create more life. Relationships are, in essence, intended to create life. And in the creation of life, I believe that life is given back in that creation process. It is universally understood that raising children is a ton of work. In fact, the decision to have and raise a child is likely one of the most costly decisions that you will ever make. It will cost you your money, your time, your sanity. In short, it will cost you everything. And yet millions of people make the decision to bring new life into this world every day. I believe that this decision is ultimately made because of God's design. God has designed tremendous rewards to be found in the development of human relationships. This is no doubt a result of the fact that God has created human beings in his image. The Imago Dei gives humans special value that is not to be found anywhere else in all of creation. And while God has given the gift of work to invest in and to enjoy all of creation, there is something truly special when image bearers invest in each other. In Matthew 25, when Jesus is speaking of his coming judgment, he says, come, come, And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. I believe that we can see from the scripture that investing into image bearers has a unique value and therefore it has a unique reward. This is why the lonely laborer that we see in Ecclesiastes is such a tragedy. He toils and labors and receives his reward. And make no mistake, God has designed a built-in reward for work, as we've already mentioned. Enjoying and subduing his creation is satisfying. Men wouldn't waste their lives away if it wasn't enjoyable. But work makes an insufficient companion. It also requires a cost. It requires your time, your attention, your devotion. But work is a companion with no eternal reward. It is not good for man to be alone. Thus Solomon points out the absurdity of trying to make work a companion, never asking yourself, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. And while Solomon isn't strictly speaking of the marriage relationship or the parent-child relationship in this text, it would be foolish not to see the eternal value that is gained by investing in intimate human relationships. Because of sin and death, Family structures don't always look as God designed it to be from the beginning, but just because our family might not look picture-perfect, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing in human relationships that God has providentially placed into our lives. The National Post published an article on the uh, personal story of Bridget Adams that I think is a good warning of what happens when you make work an idol. The National Post says, Bridget Adams caused a sensation in 2013 when she appeared on the cover of Bloomberg Weekly, I'm sorry, Bloomberg Business Week, under the headline Freeze Your Eggs, Free Your Career. She was a single she was single and blonde, a Vassar graduate who spoke fluent Italian, and was working in tech marketing for a number of prestigious companies. Her story was one of empowerment: how a new fertility procedure was giving women more choices as the magazine noted provocatively in the quest to have it all. Adams remembers feeling a wonderful sense of freedom after she froze her eggs in her late 30s, despite the $19,000 cost. Her plan was to work a few more years, find a great guy to marry, and still have a house full of her own children. Things didn't turn out quite the way she had hoped. In early, in early 2017, with her 45th birthday looming and no sign of Mr. Wright, she decided to start a family of her own. She excitedly unfroze the 11 eggs she had stored and selected a sperm donor. Two eggs failed to survive the thawing process. Three more failed to fertilize that left six embryos, of which five appeared to be abnormal. The last one was implanted in her uterus, and on the morning of March 7th, she got the devastating news that it, too, had failed. Adams was not pregnant, and her chances of carrying her genetic child had just dropped to near zero. She remembers screaming like a wild animal, throwing books, papers, her laptop, and collapsing to the ground. It was one of the worst days of my life. There were so many emotions. I was sad, I was angry, I was ashamed, she said. I questioned, why me? What did I do wrong? This truly is a tragic story of a life enslaved to work. It is only when we put God in his rightful place that we can find true satisfaction, true peace, true joy. Making work the primary affection of one's heart makes one a fool. So let the story of Bridget be a lesson for us. Not only did her foolishness lead her to make morally reprehensible decisions with the creating and aborting of human life, but even in her rightful desire to have a family, she was willing to risk building her own family by putting work first she never stopped to ask herself, for whom am I toiling, until it was too late. Once again, Solomon reveals the vanity of life under the sun. A pessimistic optimism, as Scott has coined, when we look honestly at the vanities of this life, it truly is depressing. And yet, by looking honestly at this life, it forces us to seek out someone that can give true meaning and purpose. The sluggard, the sluggard, the workaholic, and the oppressed will all end up in the same place, dead and buried in the ground. This is the sad reality that Solomon continues to point out. This reality can cause us to despair at the fragility of our very own existence. Yet when we see this in the right perspective, it can be a wonderful gift. Let it drive us to seek the one who gives us true purpose and satisfaction as it did for Solomon. Since we all suffer from the effects of the fall and sin, we must put our faith in the one who has the power to pay all of our debts, who has the authority to welcome us into his family, who loves us despite our hatred towards him. An honest look at this life will drive us to search out the one that will give satisfaction for the workaholic. It will give life for the lazy, and it can give hope for, for the oppressed. Looking forward to the day when Jesus will conquer death and grant us physical resurrection with new bodies will give us hope from our oppressors. Discovering the love that Christ demonstrates by laying down his life as a sacrificial lamb to an undeserving sinner such as myself, that can give life to the sluggard. Anticipating the never-ending relationship building that we will get to enjoy with our holy creator God will grant us peace to the one who is enslaved in toil. Jesus is the only cure to the problems of this life. May the futility of, the, of this life's many vanities drive us to seek the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in the God who died for our sins, who was buried and victoriously rose from the dead as the firstborn among many that we can find hope. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and for more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.